the first time you see a, a blue whale when it's calf going up the water and you see the, the head first, then you see the second part of the body, then you see the third part of the body and it just continues being this massive animal in this massive ocean. You never forget that. So yes, I definitely remember the first time I, I was in the Arctic. You have the beautiful northern lights, of course, uh, which are really a treat to the eyes. That feeling of sublime peace, that, that connection with nature that you get, it's just, it's just fascinating. <laughs> Winters were just like you'd imagine, cold and snowy. But in the summers, we would train on glaciers and volcanoes for several months at a time every year. And it was spectacular. <laughs> Imagine hot sunny day, wildflowers, and you're on a glacier skiing in your t-shirt and in the evening sitting by the fire storytelling with your friends. Definitely a very memorable experience. Some of the friendliest and nicest people I've met were, were, were from that region. We need more people, we need more engineers to come up and work, and we need more investments in infrastructure like connectivity. Hello and welcome to this episode of Engineering Matters, created in partnership with Fugro. I'm Jane Sophia. And I'm Alex Conacher. The voices you've just heard are Mads Christ Fredriksen. And I'm the Executive Director of the Arctic Economic Council. Pooja Mahapatra. I am a solution owner for Geospatial within Fugro. And Radha Hajinova. General Manager for the Alaska region at Fugro. They're here to tell us about connectivity and opportunity in the Arctic region. Remind me, Alex, what happens when ice heats up? It melts. So for the Arctic, with climate change and global warming, that's a lot of melting ice. The Arctic region is a global meeting place. Doing business in the Arctic or traveling in the Arctic is not new. If you go back to the year 700 and look at the trading routes from the Vikings, they, they already sailed from Norway or Iceland to Greenland to, to North America. And they did this because it was immense opportunities, for example, with the fishing and the seafood and so on. Fast forwards to the 17 and 1800s, and most of the streetlights in cities like London and Paris used whale blubber for fuel imported from the Arctic assisting the move towards industrialization. The Arctic region back then was a mysterious place. And I think it still is for many people. And it's a place that is not very well known. But what people do know is they see, you know, melting icebergs, they see starving polar bears and so on. But they also forget about the, the people living in the Arctic. The Arctic region has is, is become a hotspot for climate change. It's become the poster boy for climate change. Its people, affected by permafrost degradation, travel restrictions and changed hunting grounds. And I think this is, this is what we have to remember, that it will definitely impact local communities for fishing grounds and hunting grounds. But with the help of geodata and with the help of science, we can mitigate some of this. So, so it's a lot about climate mitigation right now. 
Science and data are critical for future infrastructure planning. MADS wants to use this to change the narrative of the Arctic and explore the range of opportunities it holds. So when you meet a person on the street and you ask them what do you know about the Arctic, they will say polar bears and icebergs. They wouldn't say, you know, battery production and hydrogen production. They wouldn't mention that some of the most sustainable fish is caught in the Arctic. They wouldn't mention all the immense opportunities within shipping and so on. They want to highlight the positive companies and examples. Show the investment community that the Arctic is more than a vast white landscape. It has satellites, vertical farming, tourism. We'll hear more about those in a bit. We need to inform people what the Arctic really is. And that will, that, that's what will be the game changer in the future. Gathering data is crucial to investing in infrastructure and companies who need to be able to see and comprehend the benefits and challenges of the Arctic before they can consider the possibilities it holds. You don't know what you can't measure. And geospatial data or geodata gives you those crucial measurements about the health of our planet, about the health of our ecosystem, that is now enabling us to make decisions towards their con conservation or towards any of these steps we are taking towards climate change. At its basic level, we collect geodata because of a fundamental human need to control our environment. And at a local level, the ability to acquire and maintain the vital elements needed to survive in an adverse environment with very low population densities. Using the kind of innovative thinking that has enabled Arctic populations to thrive over the centuries. What is unique about the Arctic is that, I mean, innovation there has been there for thousands of years. The indigenous groups, traditional hunters, were so innovative in developing new technologies. Imagine you go back to the year 1000. You got indigenous groups walking over to Greenland. It's a freezing minus 20 degrees Celsius and winter lasts 10 months of the year. The discovery of seals with the necessary vitamins for life and warm hides must seem like a lifesaver. But with no modern hunting technology, the indigenous people had to engineer a solution. The invention of the kayak allowed movement through water, but with sparse tree cover over Greenland, they instead had to make use of driftwood or whalebone for the frame. Sea lion skins, waterproofed with whale fat, stretched taut across the frame, and seal bladders added buoyancy. Further improving the success of their hunting, the harpoon was developed, providing the ability to hunt larger prey like whales. And they would also make the first rain jackets. So the first rain jackets ever developed was developed by, by people living in, in the Arctic region. The lack of connectivity meant it wasn't possible to share innovations like these. But it doesn't have to be like that. Today, innovation looks very different because it is the data, along with traditional knowledge, that is underpinning innovation. Alaskan company Polarctic utilizes machine learning and artificial intelligence to predict the next day's fishing grounds to help local communities use their resources most effectively. It partnered with Nunavut Fisheries Association, taking 50 years worth of climate, environmental and fishing data to inform their algorithm. But just as importantly, they also used local knowledge. They went out to interview all the elders in the community 
they can go and talk with the elders and say, you know, where do you go and catch your fish back in the 70s or 60s or 50s? The result of this work? A programme that can predict the short-term movements of fish, informing the communities of where they'll be the next day based on the data collected. And good news, the technology has proved successful in tests. This is what we have to remember, that it will definitely impact local communities for fishing grounds and hunting grounds. But with the help of geodata and with the help of science, we can mitigate some of this. So, so it's a lot about climate mitigation right now in the Arctic. And it has been for some years, but it will just be even more about climate mitigation. And this isn't the only example of how geodata is supporting economic growth. So I would say there's a lot of business opportunities in the Arctic. And one of the most promising is the idea of combining renewable energy with hydrogen production and storage. One of my favourite business opportunities is a small town of Berlevåg in North Norway. It's a town of 700 people and it used to be an old fishing industry, a fishing town. But over the past 50 years, the population has dwindled as half of the residents have moved away. Searching for new sources of income, one that couldn't be taken away from them as fishing could, they realised the potential of the constantly blowing wind. And so, they built 50 wind turbines, these providing enough energy for plausible use of electric cars by everybody. It even meant perks like heated swimming pools. And now they're building 12 more wind turbines. But they don't have the electricity grid to export the energy south. So what do they do? They applied for EU Horizon 2020 funding to get a test plan for hydrogen production. Having proved the viability of their idea, they're now building a massive plant for hydrogen production that will likely be used for shipping. Providing hydrogen to shipping companies and cruise ships at their deep sea port, they also plan to export hydrogen to Svalbard. Advancing their shift from diesel and coal fuel to a more sustainable option. And the surplus heat from the hydrogen plant? That will go to onshore vertical fish farms for prawns and other useful marine life. This will enable the community to supply demand all year round. So hydrogen production has immense business opportunities in the Arctic. Aside from hydrogen, the masses of affordable space and access to renewable energy, along with seaports, gives the Arctic an edge as a hub for the green transition. Of course, there are many other reasons that data gathering is critical. For example, knowing how rising temperatures are affecting permafrost, which is the foundation a lot of the infrastructure is built on. We need to know what in specific terms is happening in our environment and then devise and engineer systems that control our environment and reflect our needs. Having remained a solid and sturdy base for millennia, global warming is causing it to melt, allowing for infrastructure to move and buildings to sink. By 2050, about 70% of Arctic infrastructure is at risk of damage, 70%. And about 20 to 30% of that is actually critical infrastructure. It's a solid fundament, but then it's, it melts, it starts getting all squishy and soft, and then it, that causes buildings to sink and subside, and it causes pipelines to bend and all kinds of things to happen. Geodata can be collected to manage this, alongside land and resource management. Roads safety and navigation, model weather and water on the coast. Data tends to be gathered on behalf of government agencies, 
Companies like Fugro are tasked with acquiring wide area regional baseline data, such as topography, bathymetry, hydrology, and imagery. Meanwhile, private sector data collection examples often begin with publicly available data. And acquire engineering grade data to support infrastructure projects with foundation design, siding and routing, scenario planning. While these projects are smaller in footprint, the data is much more refined in its accuracy, precision and density. What we tend to do is acquire geospatial data in the form of, of, of LiDAR. It's called light detection ranging. It's a, it's a technique by which you can build these very, very high fidelity digital twins, replicas of, of the world around you. Fugro works on geospatial data acquired from any single platform that you can think of. You're talking about undersea robotics, you're talking about satellites, you're talking about ships and planes and drones and everything. So geodata we work with mostly is information about land surface like topography, bathymetry or subsurface like geotechnical, geological, geochemical data. Mid-ocean, like information about winds, waves, currents, environmental, like uh, habitat, wetlands, ice cover, vegetation cover, things like that. These are very diverse groups of data, and it takes different types of equipment, platforms, and different types of geoscience skill to capture it. Some equipment is remote sensing, meaning we don't physically touch or disturb the ground. Instead, we send energy like light, sound, electromagnetic energy. And from its return, we interpret characteristics of uh, the surface or subsurface. And then there is direct measurement like pushing a cone into the ground or obtaining a core sample and learning and examining specific soil properties. A typical use case for this technology would be the monitoring of structures such as bridges, um, locating potential routes in the case of an emergency, or aiding sustainable infrastructure. Think broken power lines. They can be broken if a tree falls on them, but cutting down all surrounding trees would have an adverse effect on wildlife diversity. Being able to pinpoint the location of the damage saves the workers time and saves trees. Even little things that make your life a little bit easier. I was looking at an example the other day where you have a digital twin and then you have smart sensors on, on trash cans, you know, just commun municipal tr trash cans in, in, in the city. And that enables the, the municipality to be able to optimize the emptying of these trash bins. So not sending a person to every trash bin every day, but only after it reaches a critical level to go and empty that trash can. And that already saves, you know, uh, efficiency. Um, in, in, in that operation. But even, even something you wouldn't normally think about can be driven by geospatial data. And if you have that data in a city, the, the applications that can spin out of that are just incredible. But the Arctic is 5.5 million square miles, or 14.2 million square kilometres. So collecting this data takes time. When surveys are already taking place, it's often possible to collect extra data or provide what is collected for public use, should the client be amenable. This scenario doesn't always happen though. So to gather supplementary data, the scientific community can turn to crowdsourcing. Crowdsourcing implies altruistic cooperation among people and organizations that don't necessarily know each other and don't routinely work together. 
projects like the Nippon Foundation Jebco Seabed 2030 project and the UN Decade of Ocean Science are examples of global mapping initiatives that accept a variety of data sources. To be successful, these programs require a great deal of planning and cooperation around means and methods of collecting the data, you know, the equipment, how and how to use it, engaging potential contributors and making it easy for them to participate as it is a completely voluntary effort data sovereignty issues and making sure the shared data doesn't get anyone in trouble and then curating the data and noting um, how much confidence we can place in it certainly in areas with no data something is better than nothing but at the same time we have to be mindful and make sure data users are aware of the level of accuracy crowdsourced data represents and therefore making their decisions accordingly. With all of this data, we can look at the impact the warming climate has on the people of the Arctic. As climate change here occurs between three and seven times faster than anywhere else on Earth, the Arctic community feels the effects on a daily basis. So we're really, really feeling climate change. We can, you know, if you look at the indigenous communities, they feel that the reindeers suddenly have to walk at different times of year to find their food because the reindeers are, are being herd uh, across the country. We can definitely see that whales and, and seafood, seafood generally or fish are moving further and further north because the, the, the water is warmer. There's a massive issues with now whales in, in Greenland because they need sea ice. And the sea ice is, is getting less and less, so now whales are moving further and further north, which is a problem for some of the subsistence uh, hunters there that need to, to hunt now whales for, for their meat. Whether it's for climate change adaptation or creating new industries such as hydrogen production, data is everything. And not only that, it has to be well communicated. but we need actionable and useful data. So that means scientists need to, instead of just collecting the data and sorting and arranging the data, they need to, to, to learn how to present it visually, explain it with a story and make it actionable for policymakers. And that's when we really will start seeing a big change in the Arctic region, I think. What we have right now is we have a, what I like to call a translation issue. And what I see in the future from a geospatial perspective is we're going to start acquiring more and more data to, to be able to study these effects, of course. And at some point, we're just going to be living in a data deluge. A data tsunami. <laughs> the amount of data we collect per project could be in terabytes. And the appetite for geodata is directly proportionate to the appetite for computing power, which as we know, grows exponentially. We have to be able to find easy ways of extracting information from all this data in a way that is understandable by the average citizen. The challenge in this is in the growth of technology and the assumptions needed to predict and allow for that in current building. There is an equally, if not more important, aspect of communication to the, the decision makers and to just the, the, the average citizen on what that means for their, for their day-to-day -day lives and how, 
uh, the data can help them get on with their day-to-day lives and their own decisions in a better way. By integrating computing technology innovations with geoscience, we transform the way we analyze and importantly visualize what we collect. Now, numerous soil and environmental parameters can be collated in one 3D environment. Data from above and below the waterline, from the surface and the subsurface, from anywhere in the air or water. And that is in itself phenomenal compared to how we did it, say, 15 or 20 years ago, or how industry did it. The vision for the future is to have this continually updated 3D digital twin of natural and built environment for the entire region or the entire planet. And I know it may sound quite ambitious in 2022, but that is the general direction. So as with most of these uh, these global challenges, right, like what we're facing in the Arctic or, or, or anywhere else, really, no single organization or company is going to make a difference. It's all about working together. It's all about it's all about working together to, with governments, with companies, with technology providers, with nor- common you know citizens, working together towards a common goal. A common goal that creates more connected and inclusive communities in the Arctic. I think. A lot of us living in the Arctic and Arctic communities feel let out of the political systems because if you look at the eight Arctic states and you look at their capitals, none of them are located within the Arctic Circle. And then they also have investors saying we're not going to invest in the Arctic because we want to protect the region. So these are people that feel that why don't we have the same access to education, to healthcare, to infrastructure as anyone else. Another example is COVID-19 and the digital divide it highlighted in the Arctic. And doing doing COVID, everyone's saying, oh, we'll just work from home. Yes, but if you don't have the connectivity to work from home, how are you going to do that? So there's definitely a digital divide in the Arctic and and it's hard to see investments going in that that direction. I would say there's a lot of business opportunities in the Arctic. From companies producing medicines out of codfish skin, heart medicines from prawn shells, that's an immense business opportunity, simply because bioinnovation is moving very fast. To renewable energy production and hydrogen storage. The challenge of the sparse population and difficult conditions means that the people of the Arctic have had to innovate to survive. So you can't just materialize a specialty mechanic or get out in your warehouse and get a spare part. So so you learn quickly how to be prepared and self-sufficient, but also you learn how to be a good neighbor and be aware and respectful of local knowledge and local traditions and, and help each other. But the Arctic is so much more than this. It's resource rich, a hub of sustainability and innovation. So we have a lot of innovation going back hundreds and hundreds of years in the Arctic region. And we still have to continue with that because we need to be innovative and we need to develop technologies. To allow the Arctic to live up to its full potential, we need to gather data and learn how to communicate it effectively. As the world becomes more digital, as we look to the future, we must build on the past. I mean, the easy, short thing would be come to the Arctic. 
Come to the Arctic and experience the diversity of the Arctic. Come to the Arctic, enjoy the beauty, enjoy the landscape and everything there, but also come and see and meet with the people there. Meet with the people that makes a difference for you because everything we produce in the Arctic doesn't really stay in the Arctic. That goes to people south of the Arctic region. That's number one, maybe. And then secondly, what I would say, if you come to the Arctic, please stay in the Arctic because we need you. We need engineers, we need young people, and we got a lot more to offer than what people know. The Arctic region has fish to feed the world, energy to power industries and raw materials to help in the green transition. What we need now is people. So if you are a young person or if you're an engineer and you want to make a difference, the Arctic region is really the green testbed of the future. And we are becoming a lot more digital. Everyone is saying is the world is very small. Move to the Arctic and the world is not very small anymore. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and produced by me, Jane Sophia, co-hosted by Alex Conacher, editing by Bernadette Ballantyne, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, series supervision by John Young, and our own Arctic data explorer is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, Fugro, and thanks to you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn. <laughs>